Hey dragons, welcome back to the Plain Ordinary Dragon Podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. And just so you know, we're really happy you're here. In fact, we consider time to be the most precious resource any of us have. And the fact that you choose to spend a little of yours with us is humbling. We never take it for granted. And we're so happy you're here. And I'm really excited because today we get to do an interview for the first time in months. And we did it remote, so the audio quality is not as good. Uh, it's not up to the, the the bar I would like for it to be, but I'm trying to follow uh, Marie Forleo's progress, not perfection uh, sort of scenarios here. Uh, and it really is, it's a good interview. I really enjoyed talking with Tom, catching up with him. Of course, he and I met back uh, in 2014 at Steve Earle's Camp Copperhead, uh, but he didn't come out with his album, his debut album, until this year. And we talk a little bit about that in here. And as you as you know, success leaves clues. And I think you're going to find some interesting clues as you listen to the things that Tom has to say. Tom has also been uh, a big supporter of this podcast. And there have been times, as you know, if you followed this podcast, that I've, I've posed the question uh, for me because I was struggling. Is this really worth it? Should I, should I be doing this? Is anybody listening? Does anybody care? And Tom, uh, you know, reached out to me a couple of times and said, hey, man, I really enjoy the podcast. Keep going with it. Uh, and so he, he's been one of, the, one of the people that has kind of supported me along with numerous others back when I was trying to decide, do I keep this going? Do I, do I not? Um, in fact, when he sent me some of the promo information uh, along with the signed CDs that we're giving away, uh, he, uh, he actually sent a little note. And I'm going to read it to you because it, it meant the world to me. He said, hi, Elliot. Thanks for motivating me to set... Uh, um, I'm sorry. Let me start over. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for motivating me to get this done and make it a reality. Your plain ordinary dragon series kicked me into gear. That meant the world to me, man. It brought tears to my eyes. And the reason is, is because when you have purpose and there's a reason for what you're doing, it it means so much more. And the fact that there are people that listen to this podcast that get something out of it means the world to me. And so, you know, I was thrilled to, um, to be able to have Tom on here. Of course it was great just to catch up, but it was so nice to have someone who's helped this podcast move along also be here and, and we could support him. So uh, if you get an opportunity, please make sure that you share this episode, share it on your Facebook or your Instagram or an email or to anybody that you think might need to hear it uh, or that would enjoy listening to it because that's the way that we, that our voice in the world spreads is that people have to share it. They have to listen to it and they think, oh man, that's really good. Uh, I think, I think you should hear this, or I think you should hear this, or, or maybe I just need to put this out. And it's, it's really important, especially for those artists that listen to this show. Uh, it's really important for you to help your fellow artists. It's important for us to help you. And that's what I always try to do. I always try to make sure that we're supporting one another, not just artists, of course, but business people, all of us humans, we should support each other. And because that's how we become the best versions of ourselves. And so please, please take a moment and do that. If you share the episode and you use the hashtag, 
plain ordinary dragon uh, and Tom Serzak, uh, or um, I'm sorry, you, you could do at Tom Serzak if you wanted to tag him in Instagram. But if you're going to use the hashtags, use plain ordinary dragon and hashtag call me Ishmael. And we will uh, uh, we will gather everybody that does that, and we're giving away three signed copies of the CD and uh, two digital copies. And we're going to give one CD and one digital copy away uh, before Friday or by Friday when the album comes out, where you can buy it on iTunes or any of those any of those areas. Uh, obviously, you'll be able to find all the information in the show notes, and we'll talk more about that after the show. But I'm really excited, and without further ado. Let's get started. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the on the podcast. Uh, it's good to see your face again and, and hear you again. It's been too long. We've all been kind of trapped in the houses with the the pandemic going on. So it's nice to see another face, even if it is virtual. Uh, and especially, it's nice to see it when it's uh, you know not work related uh, in regards to what I do for a daily living. So um, hey, so. You know what? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I, you know, as I told you before, I don't usually prepare questions or anything. I just use this as just conversational kind of thing uh, to kind of delve through kind of your journey. Uh, you, we know that you've got a new album coming out on Friday, uh, and we're going to talk about that some towards the towards the end of the podcast as we get to the to this part of your journey. But uh, yeah, t- tell me what was it? Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Let's start there. I had an unusual upbringing because, uh, and it didn't seem unusual to me. Uh, I was born and raised at the military academy at West Point in, in New York. So, you know, um, it was a whole military college environment I grew up in, which to me seemed perfectly normal to see everybody in uniform and cadets and all of this stuff walking around. But once I finally got out of there, I realized what a different environment I grew up in. It was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't just an army brat. I was a very unique army brat, but it was a it was so much fun. And I'm still friends with everybody I grew up with because my dad was in the band at West Point and uh, there was like a 125 piece band and they were some of the best musicians you'll ever find and they put all the musicians families in the same quarters and so there it's like an extended family I'm still friends with all of the musicians kids we call them band kids that we grew up with and um, but I think there was a fingerprint on everybody of music from when we were little because that's all they did in the neighborhood you walk around the neighborhood and people are playing their instruments all day and uh, and you hear all kinds of music it did you you hear it from jazz to rock to classical so the music was in the air so to speak from the the, the day I uh, you know started walking through the neighborhood and uh, I think that's probably the 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 uh, the foundation of why I wound up getting into this and I got into playing guitar because my dad was a horn player and I was like well I'm not gonna play horn I got to come up with something else he's lucky I didn't play drums uh, now did you did you go to school in the military academy yourself or were you outside of that you know growing up they have um, schools on post the base and you know all of the children that were uh, children of the enlisted people officers what have you that were living on base all went to those schools but they were just a regular type of public school and um, I went to the local high school which was in Highland Falls for a year and then my mother decided since I wasn't the best student that I'm I, I needed to, something special not my brothers and sisters just me so off I went 
30 some odd miles a day to a Catholic high school in Goshen, New York, which really was a blast, but it was, you know, somewhere where you had to wear a jacket and tie every day. Sure. And so it was, um, and it didn't phase me. At the time, I was like, eh, what do I care? I'll wear a jacket and tie every day. You want me to go 30 miles to a Catholic high school? I'll go 30 miles out to a Catholic high school. But it did give me kind of a split upbringing where I was, you know, one foot in a high school 30 miles away and the other foot while I'm back home in the local Highland Falls, you know, high school. So I was kind of living in both worlds, which was, again, looking back at it, it was a lot of fun. It was like I went to two different high schools simultaneously mm -hmm. and I had a wide range of friends from doing it. And, um, and of course, those were the, those were the years that, you know, we started um, garage bands and everybody had some type of little garage band and played a lot of the CYOs and the high schools and teen clubs and all of those type of things to kind of learn your skills. And uh, it was a total blast. But in my local town, we had a couple of bands that were uber, uber good. Mm -hmm. Really good. I mean, they, they did his thing on uh, Cousin Brucey in New York City, I remember. And uh, he was the one that broke the Beatles. And they, they used to do this Battle of the Bands like on Tuesday night. And a local band from my town, they entered. And uh, they got to the second round. And then they got to the finals, which was in the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Nice. Local teen club took a bus down there. We went. And they won first place. Really? And that's how good that, yeah, they, they, got, a, they got a world tour. And he, these guys are 15, 16 years old. And they're going against, you know, adults. So I'm watching all this. I'm like, I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to get to that level of talent. I better come up with something else I need to do. And so I started writing songs mm -hmm. back when I was like, you know, 14. And, uh, and really, that's what kind of drove it drove me in that direction was because i'm looking at the talent and i'm like i'll never be that good of a guitar player i'll never be that good of a singer but somebody's got to write this music mm -hmm. so i just started writing songs and i didn't really do much with original songs till i got into college and then once i got into college it went from complete rock bands to more acoustical type of uh trios and stuff like that and that's when i only started performing original music so i've been doing it with original music why? Since I've been 18. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. <laughs> well, I think by the time you get to our age, we don't need to disclose that anyway. We've just been around for a few. Uh, so, now, how, how was your high school experience? Like, you know, I know a lot of... Uh, it's different today than it was when you or I were in school. Um, the world has changed a lot. Did, did you deal with, uh, with a, a lot of... How was the experience? Was it? Did you deal with a lot of bullying and that kind of stuff, like what people see today, or uh, was it a different experience? Like when you think back, because when I think back on my experience in school, I I feel like it's very different than um, than a lot of the experiences that kids explain today or talk about today, or even in the last ten years. It seems very different. So I'm always curious as to to how you felt about uh school like was it fun to go to school did you enjoy it were you part of the in crowd were you were you part of the 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 subculture how 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 was that experience when you think back on it uh like i said i was in two different worlds and uh 
I, I lived in both worlds. I lived both in the local, you know, uh, West Point Highland Falls world, and I lived in the John Burke world of high school. And uh, I, I think it was more homogenized and, uh, you know, where everybody just got along. I don't think that there was any, you know, any of that. There was, there was no, you know, when you're young, you don't see differences. Everybody's the same. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, uh, well, I was more on the, the rock and roll type of side as opposed to the, the greaser side. Uh-huh. I was not into the, I wasn't a sports player. I basically, to get girls in high school, only had two choices. You either had to be a, in the sports or you had to play guitar. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Guitar was it. <laughs> okay, so now and let me and, and let me tell you. Let me tell you. Tell me. As you get older, you can't play sports anymore, but you still can play guitar. <laughs> you know that is a great and lucid point. Uh, <laughs> I'd never thought of it that way, but it makes perfect sense. Uh, so, I mean, clearly, music was a huge influence for you growing up. Uh, it, lots of things revolved around it, including the romantic life. So, um, when when you got out of uh, high school, uh, did did you did you think about going down a you know a, a musician's road, if you will? You know, back back when we were younger, it was it was different. The, the music world is, has changed so much since then. You know, back then, uh, you know, you had the big artists that would subsidize the indie artists. Artists. So, you know, artists like Tom Waits could get on a label because, you know, Michael Jackson was there subsidizing them and so forth. That's not the case today. Uh, and so, you know, back then you hoped to, uh, you know, you, you went to the bars, you, you tried to tour, you hoped to be discovered, uh, you sent out your stuff, you tried to run into A&R people, and that was the name of the game. Uh, and, I mean, back, you know, in the, the 60s, 70s, and really all the way up until the, the digital revolution so did you ever think about trying to go down that path no so my father as i said was a professional musician Mm -hmm. and he said to me he said listen tom he goes 95 percent of the the musicians out in the world can't make a living at being just a musician and he said it doesn't matter how good you are doesn't matter how talented you are he said that uh, a lot of it has to do with luck and uh he says most musicians really have a hard time making a living you're better off getting going to college and and getting a getting a real job so that's what i did and then i used music kind of as a as a hobby so i would always you know no matter where i lived i was always you know out playing open mics or you know doing some type of local bar or what have you but it was always a side thing for me just to get get it out of my system if you will mm-hmm. and it probably was always the right choice i i was very successful in the business world uh going down that path and i think he was right i think if you look at the people that really really made money and became successful not only was it a lot of hard work don't get me wrong because i think it's a tremendous amount of hard work for these guys but they had to be really really lucky and uh, that you know how do you how do you sprinkle luck into the equation it's such a variable it is it's it's it is kind of funny really because you know talent 
talent is not the end of end all be all. A lot of times, you know, when you're growing up, you're thinking if I'm just good enough, if I'm just good enough. And that's not really the case. Uh, you, you really are good enough. It's whether or not uh, all of the pieces fall together uh, for you. At least it was at that time. I think it's changed a lot now. Uh, I think you can manufacture your own audience now. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Kevin Kelly's uh, Thousand True Fans essay, uh, you know, where he talks about how independent artists of, of any ilk uh, can garner a thousand true fans and support themselves on their art. It doesn't happen overnight, uh, but it, but it's a great essay, and, and I think that it's it's changed. I, I really feel like it is one of the best times to be in the industry uh, if you're not tied directly to the industry if, if you if you catch my drift if you're if you take control of your own stuff i think you've got a real shot to at least make a legitimate run for what you want to do with your art i read an article just last night it was an interview with uh, bill spooner who was one of the founders of the tubes i don't know if you know who the tubes <laughs> are but anyways they're theatrical rock band uh -huh. And um, and he was saying exactly the same thing that you're saying. He goes, you know, back in the day, he said uh, the record company decided who was going to be who was going to be what. He goes, in today's market, you actually have a better shot at breaking through than you did back when we started. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, again, uh, you know, we would play a lot of the big clubs and we and they played everywhere, but really it came down to the record company as to what they were going to release, what they were going to promote and all of that and he said you go right around them today he said i think the record companies are becoming dinosaurs because of what's going on in the digital revolution in the digital world and so uh, it's funny you bring it up because i just read that article last night well you know it, um you remember pete singen from uh, camp copperhead did, did you meet pete yeah yeah so um pete came he, he does a lot of uh, children's music children's music and, and stuff like that yeah he, in he's uh, he's out of brooklyn and they have uh, uh the hoot nanny art house i believe it is and they teach children how to play music and do art and um after i think after 2017's camp copperhead i swung by brooklyn you know because it's just right there <laughs> and uh i, I yeah, just right around, I the, corner, right around right? the corner actually luba luba needed a ride to brooklyn and so i just gave him a ride to brooklyn and stopped by and saw Pete while I was there, and um, Pete's a great guy, and, and Hootenanny Art House is a great facility. I, I got to see it while I was there, and um, in fact, Pete and I talked uh, actually about this podcast back then, uh, because uh, I was telling him the concept behind Plain Ordinary Dragon was to, you know, interview plain people, people that haven't necessarily been super successful, but are successful in their own lives. You know, not, I wanted to turn the idea of what, what we consider to be success. And I was talking with Pete and he was like, you know, I'd love to hear some of those types of conversations, not just the, the, you know, Bill Gates of the world, but you know, the other people, the Tom Surzaks and, and so forth. But, uh, I'm bird walking a little, but to get back to it, uh, Pete came down to Nashville and did a show at the five spot. And I got to meet, uh, uh, one of his friends, we were talking, and, and, and he played in Nashville as a, like a studio musician. Uh, he was always in, he was always playing with all all the names. Uh, we were talking about who makes it and why they do and so forth. 
I said, well, okay, you've been in the industry for 20 years since you were, you know, like 12 years old. That's how long he's been playing with these studio musicians. I said, you know, you've played with everybody. I said, well, who makes it and who doesn't? And he said, well, there's a, there's a meeting uh, that happens usually a couple times a year where the CEOs of the music company get together and they say, uh, we're going to promote this person, this person, this person, this act, this act, and this act. And those are the ones that you're going to see make it. And everybody else is going to struggle until they get chosen. And that was the reality of the music industry as, you know, the dinosaurs like you were talking about. And that's why I, I, think, I think the concept is right, that now if you will learn how to market yourself uh, and learn the digital piece of it, uh, because that's really what the, the music companies used to do was the marketing piece, right? They said, uh, you make the art, we'll take most all of the money, and we'll, we'll go ahead and, 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 and promote this stuff. And, you'll, you know, you'll, get, you'll have to use our people and our stuff, and, and we'll take it out of all of your money and so forth, you know. And, and artists never got a fair shake. I, there's uh, so many stories about artists that we would know who were still working jobs on the side. But anyway, huge bird walk. Again, yes, I, I think it's a you got a better chance now if you're willing to to buckle down and look at the marketing piece of it. I agree with you. I mean, I, I but I also think for the most person, it's a it's a young person's game. I mean, if you're if you're going to break into the music industry, the way to do it is to break into it while you're young, not when you get to our <laughs> age. But when well, maybe it's both ends of the spectrum. Maybe you either do it when you're young or when you're older. But uh, in the middle is the hard uh, part. Indeed, indeed, I agree. Okay, so. So, so you went to to, uh, to college, and did, did you end up getting a business degree, and then going from there, or or what what type of stuff did you do in college? Yeah, that that was it, business degree. Yeah. So we won't say what kind of stuff I did in college, well, but, <laughs> but well, that's up to you. No, we're not gonna we're, we, we won't go there. It's very it's very funny because you know in, in high school you had to take languages, and I was terrible at languages, so I was like. I got to find a degree I can get that I don't, doesn't require me to take a language. And I'm looking through all the different degrees. And I'm like, and for whatever reason, which seems so stupid to me, you didn't need a language to get a business degree, which seems like you really, you really should have a language to get a business degree in, in today's world, but you didn't. So I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a business degree. So, you know, I got into business management and uh, had a four-year degree in that. Now that's that's funny though because a lot of your business is, is uh, or has been in the past has been with what what uh, Chinese and Japanese folks because uh, of import and export stuff. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, which it would be really great if I if I spoke fluent Japanese, which I of course don't. I can speak. I, I'm like I'm like the wind up monkey. I can speak enough cute little phrases that you know. Oh, isn't he cute? But uh, and I can understand enough of some of the conversations. But you throw me into a mix. There's no way I can get any of that going. It's and 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 if I would have learned Japanese, it'd be so much better because I think when you're dealing with a lot of foreign companies, they talk on the side and they're able to like strategize what they want to discuss and stuff like. And you really don't know what's going on. Right. So I wish I and I think Chinese is the language today to learn. Do you? Yeah, I if if I was to go to school again, I'd learn Chinese. Interesting. Well, now, so when you got out of college, did you just go right into starting your own business, or did did you do some some other jobs? Did you work 
around a bit or uh, how, when well, what, what was the next step so so uh couldn't get a job really so i was like in i was like frank zappa's song i wound up working in a gas station i uh i i work in a gas station at west point for about I don't know, six months i think the guy saw me and he says we need somebody to do the accounting so he put me in the accounting department real quick <laughs> he said uh had me have me up there and i'm like I, I gotta find something and uh i went on an interview with burroughs computer which was the big competitor to ibm at the time mm -hmm. and i got a job so i i, I wound up uh working for burroughs for a year which was fantastic because it was the first time i'd ever gotten on an airplane they said well we're gonna have to send you to sales school and sales schools in in nine mile road one over uh in um in detroit so we flew out to detroit for three weeks and oh my god that was one of the greatest experiences i ever oh, yeah. had i mean first of all it's a sales school type of thing but i'm also in detroit where i've never been and it was just it was just a total blast i had so much fun i'll never forget that trip so i wound up working with burroughs but they assign you uh you're either going to be calling on manufacturing or you're going to be calling on like banks and schools burroughs dominated the bank and school market at the time they gave me manufacturing <laughs> and i'm in the mid hudson valley uh -huh. and there's only one big manufacturer in the in the mid hudson valley and that was ibm uh and everybody is related to IBM and I'm like I'm never going to sell anything here because you know yeah. everybody's brother or sister works for IBM I, they're they're going to control everything so I lasted about a year there and I wound up getting this job with a small little distributor in Newburgh New York that was selling German light bulbs within a year and a half the parent company from Germany name was Osram bought the company and all of a sudden became Osram sales so now I'm working with a German company and Osram was one of the top three companies in the world mm -hmm. so and they wound up buying Sylvania and became Osram Sylvania I mean they became really really huge yeah sounds like it so what happened was they said ah you know we need a west coast office tom why don't you pack up your volkswagen and move to san francisco and start up our west coast office and i think i'm like 22 23 years old and i'm like absolutely you want me to drive to san francisco and start an office i'm gone so so i took off to san francisco and oh my gosh was that a lot of fun talk about fear and loathing uh i'll bet and there's nothing better than being the opposite coast to where the the main office is. So, because you know, you don't have anybody watching you. I go to you. work. They're, go <laughs> they're going to lunch, you know. And, and then when they come from come back, I go to lunch. And when I get back, they're going for the day. I, I just never talk to these guys. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> I learned a lot. I mean, because when you're out by yourself, it's either sink or swim. You either you either succeed or you fail. So I thought I did a pretty decent job for them. Uh, but I got the impression they wanted me to go back to the East Coast after about four years. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go back to the East Coast. I was like, I, I like it out here. So I, I got in touch with this Japanese company I knew called Ushio. And the Japanese guy there said, you know, I was looking to go back to Japan and we're looking for a replacement. Why don't you come on down and interview with us? So I go down and interview with uh, these Japanese guys. And they said, you're, you're perfect for us. We want you to run the company. What? And I'm like, now I'm like 30 years old. Right. So now I'm running the United I'm running this whole company for for the United States. It was a small little company. It was about 2 million dollar company. It was me and one girl. 
and the whole thing was like stone soup. Every time, you know, I, I wanted to do something, couldn't do it. Can't do it. No money. Blah, blah, blah. Right. I'm like, how am I, you know, I, how am I going to pull this off? So eventually, I, I, I use a stone soup strategy. I just started adding everything one at a time. I said, gee, it would be really nice if I had a sales guy on the East Coast because, you know, I use that same story about half the day is gone. You know, by the time, you know, you, you, you get started, they're done. Right. And, you know, after we get home from lunch, they're gone. We need a guy that's there all the time. I said, okay. And it's like, you know, I, I need a guy on the, in, in Chicago. And again, same story. Okay. And so brick by brick by brick by brick, I built up the sales and the inside team from two people to 200 people. Ooh. From $2 million to $100 million. And, wow. And I was the guy in charge. I was the guy in charge doing it all. And um, I don't think that there was a lot of bumps in the road on that one because, you know, I, I was traveling all over the world. I was going to, you know, Japan and, you know, we bought companies in Germany and I had to go to Germany and Amsterdam. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff in addition to hiring the people. In 2007, I had been there 23 years. I could have coasted and just rode into the sunset because, I mean, the company's really doing very good. But no, I get it in my brain that I had a, a friend of mine that wanted to sell his business in Tokyo. <laughs> it's an Ikibukuro in Tokyo. <laughs> and he said, Tom, I, I, need, I need to retire. I've got some health issues. I think you would be perfect to buy this business. You know, it's, it's perfect for you. You know all the little companies over here in Japan. They know who you are. And uh, I, I think you're like the guy that could, you know, take it and grow it. And I was like, why not? What have I got to gain? I'm like 50 years old now. So I, I buy this company in Tokyo. And then, then I really started working. I bet you did. <laughs> because I started having to go back and forth. I went back and forth to Tokyo every month for two weeks. So I would do two weeks in Tokyo, six weeks in the States, two weeks in Tokyo, and I did that for four years. So you had some frequent fire miles. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, trust me. It was like a commuter flight. I mean, it's a 13-hour flight over there, right? Wow. We'd have to go to Narita Airport, so it's, then it's another hour bus ride into, into town, right? So it was a long, long day. And uh, so I did that for, for a while, and I was like, I can't take this anymore. I sold the Japanese part and just kept the American part. And uh, so it's a nice little business that I've been you know, doing since 2007. And, uh, but I've been in this lighting world, and it's especially lighting world mostly, since I've been 23. So most of my friends, most of the people I know are all from the lighting world because that's all I've ever done. And I don't care whether it's here, whether it's Australia, whether it's Germany, whether it's Italy, whether it's Korea. They're all my friends. I've known these people for years and years and years now. It's, it's like 40 years I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a turn now. All right. So when I wound up going to Steve Earle's Camp Copperhead, mm -hmm. it put me into a whole different world. Yeah. So my whole world had been nothing but lighting. I descended into a world of nothing but musicians, nothing but songwriters. And I was like, oh, I found my people. <laughs> this is the lost tribe. Yeah. Oh, I, I completely understand because you were there at the first, you were there the first year, 2014, right? You and I and, uh, and some other folks were some of the originals. Um, the, the, when I say that, which was so much fun because he had no clue what he was doing, Steve, at the time. 
Not, yeah, none of us did. Like I remember that that was that was my favorite year. I'll, I'll be honest. I've I, you know I think I've been three times. I think you've been three times, right? Three times. We went we went the exact years. We, yeah, and two went the first, the third, and the fourth. 2014 will always be my favorite um, because it was. I guess the way I describe it is it's the religious experience for me. It's going to the mountain. That is, that's it. I mean, these are all my people. This is my tribe. These are my people, even though I don't play music for a living. Uh, you know, I, I do other stuff. I'm a tech guy. And so, but here are all these people, all these like-minded people in regards to singing and writing and, and, and creating. And it was it was amazing. It was like feeling like you were home for the first time. Oh, it was I really, I thought, well, as I told you, I started writing songs when I was 14. I never stopped. Mm -hmm. It becomes, it, you know, it's, it's my, it's my hobby. And I work at it and I worked at it and I worked at it all the time. And I would go out and occasionally play songs uh, in public, but it was something that I would do every single day. I pick up a guitar every single day or sit down at the piano every single day. And I'm constantly trying to write something and it's like doing puzzles almost because oh, you're yeah. fitting things together and you're fitting things together and you've got different thoughts always going through your your brain about i don't want to do it the same way twice i want to i want to do it so it's different oh i've done that before you don't want to you don't want to repeat yourself you're plagiarizing yourself <laughs> now i've heard that melody before you don't want to do that melody i've heard that rhythm side before you don't want to do that so you're constantly trying to create something that's original and you're trying to fit things into a puzzle and if you do something like that every day eventually you get pretty good at it i mean it, you know even if you're really no good when you start and i've had a lot of fun going back to songs i wrote when i was 14 uh -huh. and listening to those <laughs> versus songs i've written today i'm like wow what a difference i think you're absolutely right and i, I think you've hit upon a very very interesting piece here which is uh, something we've talked about on this podcast numerous times is you do things badly and messy until you can do them well. Uh, and, and that, that's a reoccurring theme. And it's funny, it's not just in art. That's really true in life. When I started in computer stuff, uh, you know, IT in the IT world, I mean, basically at the, at the time when I started doing computer stuff, I was, I was a drama major in college. And one of my friends who now, ironically enough, is my brother-in-law, one of my friends came to me and said, hey, how would you like to cut your hair? And I told him, hey, how would you like to go blank yourself? And he said, okay, I'll tell him you don't want the job. And I was like, wait, what, what do you mean? Because I was looking for a job at the time. And it's, it's, it's funny because this is where my life went and it branched because I had just landed a job as a DJ at a radio station, you know, and I've got the voice for it and, and the personality. And they were really excited to, to, to bring me in this new DJ guy who's got some potential. And at the same time, I got a job in the computer world because, you know, and I told him, I, I can check my, my, my hotmail. That's all I knew at the time was how to check hotmail and, and, and muck around on what they, they call the, the internet relay chat, Merck. Uh, and they said, no, you'll be good at this. And anyway, I landed both jobs and both, and both places said that they would work with me with the schedules. And in the first week, the IT people said, we have too much work. We need you to quit the radio job. And so I had to choose. I had to choose either do the radio job or do the IT job. And I thought, well... Um, it would make sense for my future to have something in computers and IT, uh, of course they didn't call it IT back then, but in computers, uh, so that I would have something to fall back on. And, uh, and 20 years later, that's, that, that worked out in, in one 
form or fashion. But then I think to myself, what would have happened if I had been the DJ? Where, you know, how how would I live in that world now? It's interesting. Now, uh, I want to shift a a path not chosen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and don't get me wrong. I have no regrets in what I've done. It's treated me well. It's given me a really, really great uh, position now. I get to work remotely, especially during the pandemic here. I don't have to, I I haven't been into the office since beginning of March, Uh, you know, so it's it's turned out to be a great choice, uh, but I wonder how the path not chosen would would be. And I, and I would actually like to shift a little bit and start talking about your album, uh, uh, Call Me Ishmael. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you because we've talked, you know, kind of about your journey to kind of where where you are now and in Camp Copperhead. And we're going to get into the music a little bit more. Um, are there any challenges that come to mind that you had to overcome throughout that process? Like what, do you remember any moments where you were like, I'm just going to give all this stuff up and do something different or, or because I know there had to be bumps and bruises along the way. And sometimes when we start getting into these podcasts and talking about things, it's always easy to remember the good stuff and, and the easy stuff. But the people who are listening to the podcast sometimes are stuck in these moments. And that's why a lot of times I like to try to, um, be vulnerable with my audience and say, look, you know, I, I struggle all the time in lots of different ways. Um, and it, it seems, you know, when we just show people this little slice, Hey, everything's great for them. Uh, I couldn't do that, but that's not really true. Is it that the fact of the matter is, is that we all struggle. Okay. The problem is, is, uh, the more responsibility you have, the more stress you have. And stress is very, very insidious. It's like the straws that they put on a camel's back. Eventually enough straws will break that camel's back. And, you know, so when you're leading a company and it's growing and growing and you don't have a teacher, so you're really, you know, you're trying to figure everything out by yourself and you've got a lot of roadblocks in front of you that block your path, it gets really, really stressful. And I had big problems with all of the stress of running a company of that size. The bigger it got, the more stressful it got. And um, all I can say is you have to always look at things. And, and I try to do this in my music quite often, is you have to walk in, in the other people's shoes quite a bit. I'm always very good at trying to put myself in somebody else's shoes and look at things from their perspective. Uh, but let me tell you, when you're the boss and you're in charge and you're responsible for people and their family, families and their lives, it becomes a big, big deal. Mm and uh it weighs on you and um and i think you know I, I have a very good sense of humor so you wouldn't always pick up on that from me but uh i have a very serious side to me too and and i take my job very serious and i take whatever i do very serious and because of that you know it it really got very difficult i got very sick a couple of times while i was working with ushio just from stress just from stress and i always tell everybody it's very important to step back and and, and smell the flowers, Um, to take your vacations, to spend time with your family, to, you know, some of the things that I didn't do, I wasn't really good at, but in retrospect, I know that that's what you have to do now. You have to wind up with a very good life balance between work, family, and play. And if it doesn't happen that way, if it gets too lopsided, 
you're going to succumb to the stress. I walked that path. I know that path. Was there anything in particular that you did to, to try to help you deal with the stress? Uh, I know in my life, a lot of times uh, I like to, um, I use an app now, now, now that we have an app, I like to use Headspace uh, as, as an app. I do some meditation stuff and that helps me kind of clear my mind. Um, and I deal with a lot of stress, it, you know, in my current position. Uh, I work for a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you know, we outages cost huge amounts of money, uh, you know, and so, you know, you make the wrong decision and, you know, you're dealing with, with a lot of unhappy shareholders <laughs> to, to say the least, even though it's not my company, but you know, and so that's what I, that's one of the things I do. I do other things too, but is there anything in particular that you kind of use to try to help you deal with stress or did? Truthfully, you don't realize what's going on while it's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, people that are under a lot of stress, they don't really know that they're under a lot of stress. They think I can handle it. I mean, that's the standard line. I can handle it. Agreed. But what I always did is, is, as I said, my hobby was playing, writing music. So I would always, you know, get myself some uh, alone space and I would wind up channeling everything into a song or into some type of musical piece that I'm working, which came out with a lot of really crazy music <laughs> during those days. It could be some very dark songs I wrote and put on a shelf somewhere, but uh, I've, I've um, heard a couple of them. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I, the thing is, it's, it, it, this is one of my favorite phrases is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And um, a lot of times you just don't realize what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you get cranky, you get irritable, you get, you know, you're short tempered, but you don't know why that's cheat. That's not normally me, but that's stress. Mm -hmm. People get depressed. They don't know why that's stress. Yeah. I mean, that's a component, but it's a big component. Sure. I, I completely agree. I completely agree. All right. Let's talk about this album a little bit. I want to be respectful of your time. And so this is your debut album, right? Uh, Call Me Ishmael. Is that, did I say that right? Ishmael? Call Me Ishmael. Well, yeah, it's the opening It's the opening line for Moby Dick. I gotcha. Gotcha. Well, yeah. So it's one of the most famous lines in literature. Mm -hmm. So there's like two opening lines in literature that are like super famous. One is Call Me Ishmael. The other one is It's the Best of Times. It's the it's Worst, the worst of, times. of Times. But those are the those are the two biggies that everybody goes to. So why why did and, and why did you choose that as the title to this album? Actually, I, I'm 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 curious. Is it because it was one of the most famous ones? No, it it the the very last song on the album is called Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And it's got a lot of different layers of things that are in there. The opening line to that song, because it's a it's a Moby Dick metaphor. Mm -hmm. The opening line from the protagonist's point of view is "Call me Ishmael." I've got a story to tell, which is again opening lines from Moby Dick. So I wanted to tie into that song, which is the big epic of of the song. It's like an eight nine minute song, and it's got a lot of different you know musical vibe in it than than everything else on the CD. It's it's really uh, it was my it was my Camp Copperhead you know Steve Earle Copperhead Road song. So I had to have something that was a cop copperhead road type of vibe because i was like i, I gotta throw something that really <laughs> has a copperhead road feel to it mm -hmm. 
And that wound up being the song that developed and I created that had my, you know, Copperhead Road feel to it. Gotcha. There are a, a number of, of tunes on here um, that I heard you play, bef- you know, without a full band, just you and the guitar uh, at Camp Copperhead. Or uh, and, and for all you folks who don't know, uh, for anybody that's a singer, songwriter, or really even an artist, uh, going to Camp Copperhead consists of... Um, a couple different things. First of all, there is the daytime routine where you get up and eat and listen to Steve tell master classes and, and you work on your art and, and you listen to people talk about poetry and composition and things like that. And then all that happens in the real camp Copperhead starts, which is where everybody shows up in each other's dorms and we play music till four o'clock in the morning and do all sorts of amazing, fun, debaucherous sort of things, uh, all revolving around music, really. Um, and so I've heard some of these before uh, just you and the guitar, uh, but it was really fun to listen to some of these with the full band. So now you self-produced this, is that right? Uh, I had help. I mean, it was I had uh, uh, a couple of guys that were with me on on the whole the whole uh, journey. Uh, me, the engineer, his name was Brett Grossman, mm-hmm. and the drummer who produced a lot of it, his name is Stephen Hacker. And because the three of us really put everything together, you know, a lot of the full band type of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, came from Stephen, from Stephen Hacker. He had he had some really clever ideas that uh, I just went with the flow because I was like, okay, let's do it. And uh, we changed a bunch of stuff from the demos that wound up being just great choices. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did this one song on the CD called uh, Strung Out. Uh-huh. And when I did that as a demo, it was all done with harmony guitar. So the melodies are exactly the same on the demo as they are on the album. But what we did is we cut out the guitar and we put in trumpet and we put in violin. And when we did that, the whole thing turned into a smoky barroom type of scene. It was a brilliant idea to take out the guitar and put in the trumpet. And it's a muted trumpet, so it's really, it's really, really pretty. It's the same melody, but it just changed the whole flavor like as i said like you were in a smoky bar room. yeah and there was a whole series of things throughout the album that uh we did and it was a combination of ideas between the three of us that changed the demos into something greater and i was really really happy with everybody's idea and everybody's contribution and i think the most important thing if you're creating an album is to listen to what other people's idea other people's advice don't be so protective of your art and say oh no 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 we can't do that i wasn't protective at all about it i was very open to anybody's idea and let's try it let's see what it sounds like and most of the times they were right on the money so i'm so happy i did it that way you'd be amazed at the results that you get from something like that um donnie lee who was uh, a drummer i used to play with who actually has been on this podcast uh, one, one of my favorite episodes to, to date to record and uh he and i were playing uh it was a trio we were we didn't have a bass player but we were looking for one and we had this song called it's hard being a man and it was just a very straightforward rock kind of tune and one day we were rehearsing it and donnie decided for whatever reason and he, he's a great drummer i mean he's, he's the best drummer um one of the best drummers that i have i've ever gotten to play with in a band hands down maybe the best that i've actually been in a band with 
But he had this uncanny way of changing the arrangement just by the way he changed the, the beat. And he changed that song from a straightforward uh, song to a Jamaican beat. It was weird, and it fit perfectly, and it made the song a hundred times better. Uh, so I, I can definitely empathize with that. Do you, do you have a favorite? What, what, what is your favorite tune off of this as far as, I know they're all your babies, and, it, and it's hard to pick between them, but is there any of them on there that you're like, man, I just love the way that that came out uh, ultimately? What's what's the favorite one, if you have one? The first one I, I put out as a teaser, which was uh, Mind Torn Road, uh -huh. I thought that one came out really, really well. I was one I played the last year at Camp Copperhead, and, and you videotaped it. It's one of my favorite and tunes of yours. We took it, we basically cut it down. We cut out certain parts and we cut it down. The thing that I like about it, and, and a lot of my songs, they're not Abacab type of songs. They're not an A, B, a, right. you know, bridge verse. I mean, they, they just go all over the place in terms of structure. 100%. <laughs> and, and that's one that has, a, that has a very different structure to it, but it flows so nice together. When we did that song, I had this idea, let's cut out the guitar at the beginning. Because we recorded the whole thing with the guitar. Mm -hmm. And then I said, let's just cut the guitar out in the beginning and we'll replace it with piano. Yep. So we literally cut the guitar out and slid a piano into the into the intro. And then I said, you know, I really think we need a prelude or prelude. Mm -hmm. I remember Springsteen's New York Serenade, how he had this really nice little piano part that led into the song. I said, let's do a little, you know, prelude into the rolling piano part for the verse. So then we did that and we pushed that on the front of it. And oh my God, the whole thing came out so perfect. It, it's unbelievable how we were able to create different parts in the studio from, um, even what we originally had recorded by just, you know, doing some cuts and changes, the guitar parts fit perfectly. Some of the, the we had recorded everything and I was like, I, we need some guitar fills here or some piano fills here. And when we put them in, it just, the whole song blossomed. It just changed. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really, really happy with the way that that whole song finished up because it, it has, it made it so much more alive than the acoustic version. Be careful where you're going to now 
Now, okay, so um, here, here is, is where I have a difference of opinion with you on this uh, because uh, I, I think the version that you have here it is great. I love the arrangement. I love the piano uh, piece at the beginning. And, and I really like that because when you play it live, that's what I hear is it seems like it's a piano piece you're playing on guitar, which is one of my favorite parts about seeing you do it acoustic. Um, yeah, and I do have a video recording of you doing that song acoustically, uh, and it is one of my favorites. I actually now, and but this is all, all personal preference, right? Um, I like the acoustic version. That's my favorite version. But then again, I'm a live music freak. I, I prefer live music uh, hands down over any can stuff uh, or any any stuff that you do in the um, in the studio and that goes for everybody I love like for instance um, Bob Dylan's uh, album before the flood uh, which was live from from the tour in 74 uh, from the Rolling Thunder review that's probably my favorite Dylan album of all time uh, and because I love the live aspect of it uh, you know as much but uh, but the version you have on the album is phenomenal. I, I mean, I love it too. Uh, if I was going to choose between the two, I like the acoustic one better, but it, it is, uh, it's, it's one of my favorites that you do. Now, Winter Highland Falls, I, you added horns into that, right? I, yeah, what I had, um, I had done this bridge and I had the, um, the demo version I did was with synthesizer and with, um, guitars. One of the things that I found very interesting and, and I notice it is if you ever listen to a lot of Springsteen type of songs, mm -hmm. whenever he goes into a sax, whenever he goes into a sax solo, not whenever, but many, many times when they go into sax solos, uh -huh. they change key. And so I was like, okay. So I purposely change keys twice during, and then and come back to the original key during that bridge. And I brought the sax guy in to play the guitar parts because I thought it sounded better with the sax part playing that than the guitar. And I purposely put the Barry and the tenor sax together on that one part. But it's not from a Springsteen song that I really picked it off. Most people go, oh, that's very Springsteen-esque. Sure. It wasn't from Springsteen. It was from this is this will throw you. It's from Willie Deville. Really? I don't know if you even know. Who, yeah, from from I I don't know if you know if you know Mink Deville, but it's from Willie Deville. Because when I first saw Willie Deville live, I was like really wow, taken by the way that he used uh, the Barry Sax in a lot of his songs, mm -hmm. especially his uh, Coupe de Grasse album or Coupe de Grace album with uh, "Give Me One Good Reason" and maybe tomorrow. If you listen to those songs and you listen to the Barry on those, I was more impressed with that at the time than I was with Clarence and 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 Bruce doing you know the Springsteen stuff so i lifted it more from that area <laughs> and maybe lift isn't the right word borrowed there, it there you go. from they that use the concept uh, you know I, no, there's nothing new under the sun uh, but but the way we the, you know the way we say it may be the only thing you know that's probably my favorite cut on the album is winter highland falls
you know, as far as, but I don't know, Guys Like Me is a great, a, a really great cut too. I really liked that one as well. Which one? The, the first one, Guys Like Me. Oh yeah. Um, so you know that's about a stalker, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah. T- tell me about it. T- t- how did that one come about? I don't know. <laughs> it's a. I can tell you. I can tell you who inspired. Okay. It. So I'm a. I'm a. I'm a big fan of of Looney Tune cartoons. Oh. Me too. I told you I was in a, into co- I was into comic books. I was also a big fan of Looney Tune cartoons, and I had a character that was in my mind as I was writing this song. It was always one of my favorite cartoon characters, and it was Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> I, I, I okay. can see. I can and see. He was, yeah. So he was always chasing his cat, and a cat was always Penelope Pussycat, and he was always chasing Penelope, and she she was constantly like, "Get away from me! Just leave me alone!" You know, just and he'd be like, you know, she really wants me. She just doesn't know she really wants me, right? So, so I basically had I had him in mind as I was writing that song, and somewhere along along writing a song i came up with his third verse which just went off on a completely different tangent was you know because he's like chasing his girl and she's like get away you know she's like gives him a punch knocks him out and he's like i'm just not going to give up on this girl right you know because i think she really likes me and she turns out to be a bank robber and she uh she's robbing a he follows her into a bank and she's like you know it's robbing the bank and he's like still look we can still work it out it's not a big deal this isn't a deal breaker exactly so that's kind of what the song's about i don't know if anybody follows the lyrics well enough to get it but that's oh man because the drummer was like you know the producer when he was reading through the lyrics he goes this is this is all about a stalker he said what the hell is this part here about the bank i'm like don't worry it'll all go together it'll be fine guys like me are hard to find we'll be hanging around that dirty little town forever guys like me are hard to find but we can find you baby anytime I was sitting at the bus stop watching all the rust drop as another greyhound got away. She was sipping on a soda pop, wearing a low-cut halter top, carrying a suitcase that said Jesus saves. Well, I knew we'd both be stuck here a while, so I gave her my best go-to smile. As I made my way across the room, it sounded like a sonic boom said, Buddy, just get out my face. Baby, don't write me off like that so fast Oh, 
that is one of my favorite cuts on the album as well. Now, I hadn't some of these I hadn't heard before. Uh, are there any of them that are, are like new riots that you've just recently written, as opposed to some? Because you know they say that everybody has uh, you know their entire life to write their first album, and then they get signed and they have six months to write their second one. So you know, which one of these are there any of these that are new, as opposed to the ones that have been kicking around for a while? So uh, the second song, the third song, and um, it's strung out. So roll the dice. Um, last gunfighter and strung out. Uh, last last gunfighter and strung out are all brand new. I wrote those all for the album. What about down and out in L.A.? I found that one to, uh, lyrically. I really liked that one. Uh, I had written that a while ago, and that was one of the ones where I said you you got to put yourself in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in L.A., almost every off ramp, there's somebody there with with a sign saying, "Hey, look, I need a job. I need a break. You know, I'm hungry." And I kind of thought, "Wow, how do these guys wind up here?" Yeah. What led to this guy being on the side of the road? Or what led to this lady being on the side of the road? And so I kind of made up a whole narrative story around what led to this guy being there. Yeah. And then wrote it from that perspective. And um, that one actually was more of a jungle land type of song. We actually truncated it. We cut out the, there's another verse to it that I, we cut out to shorten it. Sure. <laughs> and, and ended where we ended it because, you know, it, it slows down towards the end about, you know, you know, counting up my nickels and, you know, dining on cold French fries and, you know, wondering why I'm still alive. And, and then it actually would go back into another whole verse about uh, something. But we, we ended it there. But it was my jungle land piece. And I think you can hear there is a um, a major to a suspended chord structure that's picked throughout, which is a very spring scene st- style mm-hmm. where he does he does a lot of that um, uh, major to suspend it all the time through his songs well I thought you did a good job in in capturing um, the the take from somebody else from what you've explained I think you did a really great job in, in putting that one together I really liked it now my world fell apart once we were through and I'm holding a sign saying I work for There's a number, I mean, there's so many, everything's a, a good cut on this album. I like all, everything's in it. Now, you did a video for Faces in the Crowd, right? Um, 
I, I think I saw. I haven't. I haven't released that. I, I I released a little snippet, which was so I had all these extra little cuts mm -hmm. that uh, from faces in the crowd. So I took one of the little snippets and I put the little snippet out on Instagram. But there's a there's a complete video on us recording that live in the studio, and I'm going to get that out pretty soon. I've been trying to release like a song a week on Facebook and on Instagram and stuff like that just to get some awareness going. Sure. And now as we're getting really close, I'm going to start letting some of the other stuff out. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, um, you know, you've mentioned Springsteen a few times, and I know that he's a bit of an influence for you, uh, and I, I assume Steve Earle is as well. But Springsteen's really kind of one of your big influences, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would I would say I've studied, you know, his song structure and I've studied the way that he does his his lyrics extensively. I really really like the way that he puts songs together, so I've been a big fan of his. And it's so funny, you know, he played at my college back in December of 75, and they had to drag me to go see him. I was so into prog rock. I was such a, you know, Peter Gabriel Genesis type of fan. I was like, ah, I don't want to go see that. <laughs> and besides, I thought that, uh, I, in my mind, for some reason, I thought Springsteen was really Barry Maguire for, from, uh, you know, Eva Destruction just going electric, you know. For some reason, I thought it was the same guy. And they were like, no, 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 you got to see this guy. He puts on a great show. And I'm like, oh, okay. They finally coerced me. And I go down to the gym. And uh, I guess he had just come back from that concert in London that he put out on that you know box set that he did uh, on, on, on Born to Run. And so it was pretty much the same show that he did in London. And I just sat there the whole time with my jaw all the way down watching the show because this was nobody knew who he really was. And um, his stage show at that particular moment in time uh being that he was younger and a lot more you know active he was all over the place it was he was doing choreography before anybody started doing choreography before any of this stuff started happening in today's world he was really you know doing a broadway type of show uh in a college gym which was just unheard of i we had a lot of good bands come through my college for some reason I mean, we had peter frampton come through with his Frampton Comes Alive. He was okay, but he doesn't do the type of, you know, animated show that Springsteen did. We had, you know, Poco come through. We had just, you, you name it. I had all these phenomenal bands. But when I saw Springsteen do his show, I was like, that's what rock and roll is all about. <laughs> And from that day, from that day forward, I switched gears and started becoming a big, big, you know, Springsteen fan. And I really studied them. But up until that point, before that, I had studied the Beatles intensely. I mean, I had dissected and 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 completely taken apart uh, the White Album, song by song by song. I deconstructed every song to try to understand how they wrote these songs. You know, what was it? What were they thinking? How did they put the the chord structures, the rhythm structures, everything together? So I was a huge fan of the Beatles and how they did things too. So you'll s I have a number of influences that go into my songs. I mean, I'm, I'm listen from A to Z in rock when I was young. Anybody that falls between you know Allman Brothers and Frank Zappa, I think I've got all of their. I got everything. Yeah. And um, well, I don't. I don't doubt it. I didn't really get into the old countryside till much later, but my argument with a lot of people is old country was always there, and country and, and outlaw country was always classified in the rock category until much later, and then they lifted it out and put it in its own category. A couple interesting side notes here. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, 
we, as we've established, we met at camp at Steve Earle's camp Copperhead. And there's a very interesting story about Steve Earle and Bruce Springsteen. And, and that is, is that without Bruce Springsteen, there's no Steve Earle. And, and, and so uh, I'm going to summarize the story. I may have told it before, uh, it's, but it's probably one of my favorite Steve stories where, you know, he, he went and saw Springsteen on his Born in the USA tour, right? And when he got back from right. that concert, he wrote Guitar Town. And if you listen to Guitar Town, uh, at the very, you know, he pays homage to Bruce Springsteen, right? Because, uh, because in, 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 uh, in Born in the USA, he says, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm good rockin' daddy. And, and in, in Guitar Town, he says, I'm cool rockin' daddy down from Tennessee. And that, that is the, con- exactly. the connection between the two. And I was floored when Steve said, without, Bruce, without Springsteen, there would be no Steve Earle. And so I think it's interesting how the influences kind of tie together in all these, all these very different strings, because you, you wouldn't look at Steve's music and Bruce's music and think that they're the same thing, but they're so interconnected. It's amazing. I told everybody, I said, look, if you listen to the music, it's 180 degrees different between a Springsteen music and an Earl type of music. But if you look at the lyrics, they're two of the top five lyricists in the rock world today. I mean, I put both of those guys right there with Bob Dylan. I would too. I mean, if you if you if you study lyrics, and and that's where I see the real connection between Springsteen and Steve Earl is on the lyric side. And and my only criticism of Steve and and his camp is that he spends way way too much time focused on lyrics and not a, a not enough time sent uh, focused on song structure. Uh, he does a little bit. I mean, he talks about you know getting uh, Folkways album or something like that. Oh yeah yeah. But um, he doesn't he doesn't spend a lot of time on song structure. He spends it all on the study of lyrics and on writing lyrics, which is which is fine. I just would like to see a little bit of both when you get into songwriting. You're you're talking about the whole thing. Well, and it's progressed since our you know since that first year too. You know, in the last couple of years, he did spend he did <laughs> yeah, spend absolutely. more time uh, on song structure and that kind of thing. And uh, but you know also if you remember back in 2014, none of us knew what the heck to to expect and uh and and he didn't either as you alluded to um and you know back then if you remember steve said i'm not a very good guitar player and i don't really know chords and music i just kind of you know play by ear well in recent years he's kind of changed his tune and now he says i'm actually a pretty good guitar player and you know so forth um and so when i listen funny you picked up on that exactly the, the thing that's interesting you know the only difference between 2014 and the later years that we attended is that Steve has more confidence in himself. That's really it. Is that in 2014 he was like I'm not really that good of a guitar player, but in 2017 and 18 he was like Oh yeah 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 I'm I'm a, I'm a pretty good guitar player I'm a pretty good songwriter and so it was nice to see his confidence even in somebody who's made it I mean look he had made it before we got to go to Camp Copperhead or he wouldn't have been able to do that and the confidence for him just grew to be able to say that later on. 
Yeah, he. It's it's funny you picked up on that because I picked up on the same thing. He did say all of it, and uh, you know, but I think he was just trying to be very modest in the the, the first go round, and and by 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 year four, he was like, screw the modesty. Uh. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of truth to that statement for sure, for sure. All right, well, we've uh, yeah, I want to be respectful of your time, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a great album um, for. A, Every single every single cut is enjoyable to listen to, um, and there are several of them on here that I have favorites of. What should where where do you want people to to find you? How how can we can we uh, connect with you? What's the best way to do that uh, from your perspective? Everything gets released on Friday to all the streaming sites, and it'll be on Amazon, it'll be on iTunes, but I think it's all digitally downloaded right now because the way that everything's working. If you want hard copies of CDs, I am selling them on my website, which is TomSerzak.com. The only problem is you have to be able to spell my name, <laughs> and I didn't think of that. <laughs> As being an issue, but now, now I realize that might be a little bit of an issue. Well, but I don't know uh, how hard it is. I mean, you know, C I U R C Z A K. <laughs> it's like they teach you in school, I before you, <laughs> That's <right>. especially after C. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so for everybody that listens to the podcast, uh, there will be links in the show notes to your website uh, as as well. Um, so they, they don't have to know how to spell it. They just have to get to wherever they, they listen to the podcast and they can click on the link and get directly there if they want a CD. We're also giving away some CDs uh, that you were gracious enough to sign for us. Uh, and we're going to give away some digital stuff as well. What, uh, what would you, do you, do you want uh, people to show up? Um, I mean, do you like people to show up on the, the, do you have like a Tom Serzak music on Facebook or should they hit you up on Instagram or what, what, what's the way, what if people wanted to connect with you, uh, tell you how much they liked it or, or whatever, what's the best way to do that? I have uh, Tom Serzak Music, definitely, on uh, Facebook. And uh, I also am on Instagram under my name, Tom Serzak. So either way works real well. And as again, I have the, the website is also, I'm really original with the name. I'm using <laughs> the same name all the way through. I was going to go with a shorter name, but you know what? Have you ever tried to come up with a different name? They're all taken. Everything I can think of is taken. Yeah, I, I think even the term they're all taken is taken. Um, <laughs> there's... Uh, it, it's hard. I think I, I listened to Seth Godin uh, a few few months back, and, and I think he was saying something to the effect of that every URL with uh, less than six letters has been taken at this point. Oh, it's, it's impossible. That, <laughs> I even looked up, you know, okay, I was looking up for hashtagging and, and, and stuff like that Instagram. It's like, okay, I'll hashtag, you know, call me Ishmael. I'm like, nope. That's taken. There's like five thousand on that one, so I've got to come up with something. Well, different. you don't have to come up with anything different. You can you can hashtag call me Ishmael. The beautiful part about that is that uh, all of the people that that you know already have that hashtag are going to be able to see something else with call me Ishmael. I think it's fine. It's a, actually a kind of an interesting, unique guerrilla marketing tactic, uh, and it's relevant because your album is is named Call Me Ishmael. So. I may go that way. I was I was going to go. You know, I'm 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 very modest, just as you can uh -huh. see. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us, man. Is there anything um, before before we go? Uh, and and I will in the show, show notes. We'll put links to your website. We'll put links to where they can uh, can find your press kit. Uh, we'll put links. Uh, you know, basically, um, I think uh, your 
video, the partial video for Faces in the Crowd is actually on your website as well, um, so they can check that out. Um, I'll find your your um, Facebook stuff and put that on uh, as well, so people, you know, don't worry. If you can find my show notes, you're going to be able to find Tom. No, no two ways about it. And, of course, uh, everybody can always uh, reach out to me directly um, at plainodragon at gmail.com, and I will point you in the right direction as well. Um, so they don't have to if, – even if you can't spell, you can find Tom and, and hear some, some good music. But before we go, uh, I just wanted to ask, um, is there anything – in this experience that we call life, is there anything that you would like to let uh, people uh, out there know in, in regards to that? Like uh, any words of wisdom, parting words of wisdom, or anything like that uh, that people should, um, that you'd like to share? Let's just go that route. Wow, talk about stumping the band on that one. <laughs> words of wisdom, and I feel like saying something, I feel like saying something like, stay golden, pony boy. I mean, I'm not really sure what to say. Uh, right out of the outsiders. There you go. Uh, no, you know, I I think that there's some interesting things that, that I picked up from just listening to you uh, talk today. Uh, and sometimes I summarize these things at the end of the podcast, but here's as good as any place. Um, you know, you realized early on that music was going to be a big part of your life, but you also realized that it didn't have to be the thing that was your breadwinner, that you could still enjoy your art and put your voice into the world in one form or another without necessarily having that to having your art have to support you. Uh, and you went a different direction, but the music was always a part of it. Your art was always a part of your life. And then at a certain point, you decided, I want to put my voice out into the world in a more tangible way. And you found a way to do that, basically using your um, your vocation, your business to fund your art, which is, I think, a, an amazing and wonderful blueprint for any of the struggling artists out there these days to realize that, you know, maybe you don't need investor what you need to do is let your let your work subsidize your art until the art can subsidize your work kind of thing so i mean that was a, i think an important point that you picked up and the other piece is is that you know you you kind of never gave up on the music no matter where you were or what you were doing and you know eventually you were like hey i I want to share this with other people. And I think those are, I think that's a great way of going about it. And, you know, because sometimes we get stuck, I think, in thinking, well, this is the way, this is the path and so forth. And I think that a lot of times the people who are very successful in their lives and even in business find a, a new path that works. Well, I agree. Uh, one of the things, though, is I, I will say the thing that, that kind of kicked me into gear finally was I was really inspired by all of the people I met uh, in, in the Copperhead group. And everybody there started to to put something out. They would either put out CDs or they would take, like you, you came out with a podcast. And, and then you stuck with the podcast. And I'm like, if if everybody could be putting out CDs and Elliot could put out a podcast and, you know, all these, everybody was starting to do it. I'm like, I can do it too. Why can't Why I? Why not me? So Absolutely. I was just... So, you know, I was, I, I, the thought had never even crossed my mind. But then I said to myself, well, how am I going to do this? And that became an interesting challenge. But the first thing was the spark. Without the spark, I would have never, never gone down that path. And I, I really, all of the people that I met in that other world, that parallel universe mm -hmm. called Camp Copperhead, is what really pushed me to finally saying, let's make this album. Why not? They can do it. I can do it. 
Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's good. We'll leave it there. Tom, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for spending this time with us. We really appreciate it. Well, that was a pretty good interview. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. I hope you took note of some of the things uh, that I summarized at the end. I hope you took note that music and art and personal expression has been a very big part of Tom's life, even though it hasn't necessarily been his vocation. Uh, in today's world, of course, it's easier to have that vocation in some respects. Of course, now, right now in the middle of the pandemic, it's not easy at all because we can't really get in front of people like we used to, you know, you can't go to the bars and, and, and arenas and so forth in the same way, because, you know, we're all trying to social distance uh, or a lot of us are, and we're trying to, um, you know, stay safe. So it's, it's changed in a lot of ways. That's not the way we, we talk about it on the podcast, obviously. Uh, but, um, I thought it was really, it was really interesting to listen to Tom talk about his journey from being just completely immersed in music and completely immersed in the art and it being a part of him. And he used it throughout his life in different areas. Like he talked about how he, that would help him deal with stress by putting some of this into a song and putting it into, into his art and making that expression uh, become a reality, bringing it from the thought process, from the heart process into the world. And, you know, there's something magical about that. And that that's why there's something magical about a pen and paper, in, in fact, because you're taking something that is from inside and really nondescript into a physical reality. And so that's, that's a really cool thing. Uh, also another neat thing was, is that, you know, Tom decided he wanted to put his voice in the world after being around a lot of people that were doing the same thing. And that is one of the reasons why we need to listen to podcasts and we need to listen to audiobooks and we need to read books and we need to be around the people that will inspire us to do our life's best work, whatever form that may take. And Tom's done a really great job of that. And this is a really great album. I really enjoyed it. The The music production is great. It's got some, some really great 70s vibes to it. It's got some really great Springsteen vibes to it. And it is, it's a really, it's just a fun album. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And, uh, you know, if that's possible, because I enjoyed the living daylights out of it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away some of these albums and we'll give away two of them by Friday to whoever, uh, you know, shares with the hashtags. Uh, you need to do a uh, hashtag plain ordinary dragon and hashtag call me Ishmael. And that's so I can find you guys wherever you might be. Uh, if you don't put those, those two hashtags in, it's going to be hard for me to be able to, um, get you your stuff. Uh, but if you do it, I'll reach out to you and we'll send it to you wherever you might be in the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just limited to the U S we'll send it to you wherever it might be after Friday, uh, in just keep sharing the podcast. If you share the podcast uh, after Friday, uh, with people and use those hashtags, plain ordinary dragon and, and hashtag call me Ishmael, then we will be giving away the rest of what we have here. And, uh, we will, we'll, we'll let that run for about a week. And then on the following Friday, we'll go ahead and give away the, the CDs and so forth. And, and the winners will be notified and we'll, we'll go down that that route. Um, please, please, please like and share this episode. 
not so much for me and not so much for the for the podcast, but let's get Tom's voice out into the world. It's important. Um, and I'm hoping to have some more artists on and we're going to put their voice into the world. And I hope you share theirs too, because that's, that's just so important that we support each other, that we support each other's voices, that we empathize with each other. I thought it was really great when we were listening to Tom talk about the different, uh, the different songs on his album. And he talked a lot about, uh, or some of about a song called Down and Out in L.A. And I thought he did a superb job empathizing with that situation. And, you know, I remember listening to Bob Dylan or reading an article that he said where he said, you know, uh, it used to be artists and and writers would get outside of themselves and write about other people and other people's uh, experiences from, from the perspective of the writer or from the perspective of the person. Um, and he, and I remember Dylan saying, Hey, we should get back to that. And so some of the things that you see that you hear on this album are like that. Um, so anyway, all right. Uh, as you know, and as you've heard me say many, many times, Oh wait, before, before I get to that, before I get to that, before I get to that, if you haven't signed up for the newsletter yet, please do go to the plain ordinary dragon.com and, and sign up for the, for the email newsletter. Uh, you, you, in fact, there was a heads up on winning, winning some of this swag from Tom, uh, in the newsletter that went out yesterday. So if you get a chance, go to the, the website and, and sign up. Uh, and if you have a chance, write us a review, uh, on iTunes or on Podchaser. those really help. And, uh, uh, you know, I haven't said anything about this in the past, uh, but we actually uh, were in the top uh, top 500 for some shows uh, for some of the podcasts um, on Chartable uh, when we were doing some of our interviews and stuff. And so sharing the message helps. And I know I harp on it a lot because we need the help. And, and if you like the message, I hope you take a few seconds and share it. But as always, You might be plain and you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things. And we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it. There were no answers there. Where are the 